Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast, recorded April 6, 2011. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Graham McLaren, MD, FCCM, lead author on an article published in the March 2011 Pediatric Critical Care Medicine titled Central Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation for Refractory Pediatric Septic Shock. Dr. McLaren is a pediatric intensivist at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. He is also an adult and pediatric intensivist and the director of cardiothoracic intensive care in the Department of Cardiac, Thoracic, and Vascular Surgery at the National University Heart Center in Singapore. He also serves as an assistant professor of surgery and pediatrics at the National University of Singapore. The citation for this article is Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, 2011, Volume 12, pages 133 to 136. Thank you for being here today, Dr. McLaren. Uh, Thank you very much for the invitation to talk, uh, Margaret. Um, So, Graham, would you please start with an overview of your study? Tell us about uh, what you did and what you reported. Uh, Sure. So the background to this was that uh, the American College of Critical Care Medicine, uh, as you know, in uh, in what I think are a fantastic set of guidelines for the hemodynamic support of children with septic shock. Uh, That was published first, I think, in 2002, and then there was a revision uh, in 2009. So in these uh, guidelines, they recommended considering the use of ECMO in children with refractory shock in whom all other therapies had failed. Now, if you go and read those, uh, those guidelines, the algorithm that they have, you'll notice, is quite uh, complex, uh, very detailed, lots of instructions about what uh, venous oxygenation uh, saturations to target, what inotropes to use, what doses of inotropes to use. But when you get to the end, when nothing else works, they just say ECMO and don't make any comment about how you should do it. So with this in mind, we wanted to look at uh, how we did it. And uh, we had started doing central ECMO, that is doing a sternotomy and uh, having a cardiac surgeon cannulate the right atrium and aorta directly uh, since the year 2000. And uh, in an earlier paper, which we published in, uh, also in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2007, we observed an association between central cannulation and improved survival. So with all this in mind, we wanted to look uh, this time specifically at just those children who'd had central cannulation over the last uh, nine years at our institution. So this was a retrospective study looking at central ECMO for children with septic shock, specifically when ECMO had been used primarily as circulatory support, not for respiratory support. So children who had had were put on ECMO because we couldn't ventilate them and they couldn't oxygenate them. We weren't uh, looking at those children, nor were we looking at neonates because we know that neonatal septic shock is a different entity than uh, septic shock in older children and actually has an improved outcome. So our study, we looked at uh, 23 children over about nine years and uh, three-quarters of the children survived a hospital discharge, which was higher, much higher than our institutional outcomes for ECMO with septic shock prior to the year 2000, and also higher than the standard uh, expected by the American College of Critical Care Medicine. In their position paper, they said that uh, they anticipated no more than 50% of children 
sick enough to require ECMO for septic shock would survive. In this paper, we were seeing uh, 75 or 74% to be exact, uh, surviving to hospital discharge. We noticed that uh, the pre-ECMO arterial lactate, the higher it was, the worse or the, the less likely it was that the child would survive. And we also noticed that there was a trend. It, it just missed out on being statistically significant. The higher the flow, higher ECMO flow, was associated with survival too. So we concluded that central ECMO seemed to be uh, associated with better survival with, than other cannulation strategies, both in our institution and, both predi- and, and predicted by the ACCM. Of course, it's an uncontrolled retrospective single-center study, so um, cynics will not necessarily accept it at face value, and that's fine, but at least I think it's uh, shown us that central cannulation is at least a a valid strategy. Uh, Of course, in our minds, it's a technique of choice, and we don't use other cannulation strategies anymore. So how did you happen to start using central cannulation for ECMO in 2000 or so? Well, we had the principle of reversing shock as quickly as possible, of course, is a, is a fundamental tenet of good medicine. So we had wanted to, once we had got to that point in the, in the decision-making algorithm that we had decided, or the clinician at the bedside had decided that this, this child needed ECMO, we wanted to get high-flow ECMO. And we wanted to reverse, or first of all, stop, and then reverse multi-organ dysfunction by uh, restoring blood flow and obviously uh, restoring oxygen delivery. So before the year 2000, we had tried a number of times to pursue this high flow concept using two peripheral venous cannulas and one arterial cannula. And in some of the children, it, it worked reasonably well. Um, but in other children, usually because of technical limitations from the cannula size or difficulty getting access, it didn't work all the time. And then uh, in the year 2000, uh, there was an episode, which uh, I confess I wasn't working in the hospital at the time. The, the, the anecdote is that of Warwick Budd, who's been the ECMO uh, program director at the Children's Hospital in Melbourne for more than the last 20 years, and is now the, the director of the PICU. So he was looking after uh, this girl. There were three, three of them. One was uh, 17 years old. Two of them were 18. They all went out for a party. They all caught meningococcus. So they all went into fulminant septic shock. Because two of them were 18, they went down the road to the, one of the adult hospitals where they both died. The 17-year-old was admitted to the children's hospital and was looked after by Warwick. And as she got worse and worse, despite uh, everything that could be done at the time, it was decided that she should be put on ECMO. Uh, at that point, they discovered that they didn't have ECMO cannulas in the hospital at the time that were big enough to cannulate her. So it was then decided, I think largely again by Warwick, that she should have a sternotomy because we did have cardiopulmonary bypass cannulas that were big enough. So after an awful lot of persuasion, eventually she did go on central ECMO with very, very large cardiopulmonary bypass cannulas, and then everyone realized that here was an application of this principle that to try and restore uh, oxygen delivery as fast as possible using very, very high flow central cannulation, and it worked so well that we've been doing it ever since. Sounds like a real serendipity. Yeah, I think um, uh, it, that, that moment was serendipitous. I think the principle was there, but we hadn't really found a way of applying it safely until this, this episode. 
So you. I, I should add that. Sorry, I should add that that seventeen-year-old girl survived, of course, and was doing very well. Which is always a memorable experience. Yeah. So you no longer use peripheral ECMO in the pediatric septic shock population. Naturally, there are some exceptions. For instance, if a child had had, uh, had, had uh, cardiac surgery in the past and had lots of adhesions in the mediastinum, we'd probably have to think twice about it, or at least we'd have to modify the timing of it to allow the surgeons greater time to dissect. Sometimes in the children, the Children's Hospital of Melbourne has a, a national ECMO retrieval program, so um, sometimes when we're going out on trips, we may opt to cannulate peripherally to begin with, get the child back to the children's hospital and then convert to central ECMO. But on the whole, if the child is going into fulminant septic shock in our institution, we generally just go straight to central. And your, um, the reason that you think central ECMO is more effective in this population, it sounds like, is because you can achieve higher flow rates? I think that's, that's certainly that's part of it. I it. The key here is that you're achieving higher, higher flow rates safely. Uh, we've been using centrifugal pumps and hollow fiber oxygenators for the last decade. And uh, with those, of course, if you turn the uh, revolutions per minute up too high, then you can cause hemolysis um, because you generate turbulent flow and chatter in the lines. But with uh, central ECMO, there's a number of advantages. First of all, you've got high flow. Um, to put that in perspective, the largest venous cannula we, we've used, admittedly in an older adolescent, was a 56 French bypass cannula, which is pretty much twice the size of any venous cannula you'll ever get in an adult. So mm-hmm. these are seriously large cannulas. Um, and we feel that doing that, you maximize laminar flow, you minimize the chance of promoting hemolysis. Uh, furthermore, because the oxygenated blood is returning directly into the ascending aorta, uh, the coronaries and the, the cerebral vessels get the advantage of that oxygen-rich blood. If you're running peripheral ECMO, particularly on older children with femoral cannulation, then you may have competitive flow where blood exiting the left ventricle is deoxygenated because of concurrent respiratory failure, um, which may cause myocardial damage or potentially cerebral injury. So with central ECMO, you avoid that problem of maldistribution of oxygen. And you also, I think, decompress the left side better because you've got less pulmonary blood flow. So the left side of the heart, because of less volume, has lower pressure and therefore may promote better recovery. Is it faster to place a child on central ECMO compared to peripheral? I have to say this as a non-surgeon. I don't think so. I think particularly these, these, most of these children have not had recent stenotomies. In fact, none of them have. So these are all fresh stenotomies. And whilst the, the surgeons at RCH are incredibly fast, I think they would be faster at getting peripheral cannulas in than central cannulas. You've listed a number of advantages with regards to central ECMO. Are there disadvantages to using this technique? Um, you would probably expect that there would be a risk of mediastinitis. Obviously, the, the theory is there. If a child has uh, got an open chest in an ICU for several days, then there's clearly a risk of developing a mediastinal infection that they otherwise wouldn't be at risk of. But we routinely swab all the the uh, children as they are being decannulated, and at least in the, the series that was published this month, we haven't seen mediastinitis in any of them. Uh, other disadvantages, uh, the risk of bleeding. It's probably more with central ECMO than it is with peripheral. And the last thing which I have a tendency to overlook um, is, uh, you, of course, you need a cardiac surgical service and you need cardiac surgeons who 
buy into this concept, and I think that's quite a challenge for a lot of institutions, either because they don't have a large pediatric cardiac program or because their surgeons think that this is an outlandish concept and refuse to be part of it. Are there other patient groups besides septic shock in which you use central ECMO? Uh, Most obvious, of course, would be the uh, following cardiac surgery Mm -hmm. um, because they've already had their sonotomy. is just easier. And, of course, a lot of institutions do use central ECMO after cardiac surgery. Um, I think very, very few would do it for septic shock. But theoretically, if you have any problem where there is concurrent ventricular depression plus respiratory failure um, uh, plus multi-organ failure, such as you might see in certain drug overdoses or myocarditis, for instance, um, then central ECMO could, could be used. How do you decide when to place a child with septic shock on ECMO? Uh, that's, that's a tricky one. Um, it's very hard to be objective about this because there's no good studies looking at prospective criteria. I think, in principle, the indication is straightforward enough, uh, which is when nothing else works. So when the shock is refractory, when all attempts at vent- ventilatory management, fluid resuscitation, pharmacological, both catecholamine and otherwise, disease modifying therapy, such as antibiotics, uh, intragam, etc. Um, when all of those have been tried and, and are failing and the child's continuing to deteriorate, then you need to think about it. I think uh, the rapidity of progression of shock is probably more important than the absolute amount of inotrope support. But in general, we would start thinking about it if the, if the child was on, had an inotrope score of more than 100, so that's about an equivalent of one mic per kilogram per minute of, of epinephrine, um, if they'd already had all of the strategies recommended in the uh, ACCM consensus statement, and, of course, if they were continuing to get worse. One thing that's very important to think about when you're talking about indications for central ECMO is um, where are you working? So in RCH, the surgeons have bought into this concept very, very enthusiastically. So if we call them up and say, we've got a child the deteriorating uh, may need to go on central ECMO, they don't question, um, or they don't say, what are you talking about? They come in and they they get on with it very, very quickly. If you were working in an institution which didn't have cardiac surgical service and you needed to refer out, or if your institution had never done it before and the cardiac surgeons weren't familiar with the concept, then I think you'd need to refer early. In some respects, this is similar to fulminant myocarditis, where... um, the indications for support are really based on clinical experience, uh, individual judgment, and what your institution is capable of doing, how quickly can it get on ECMO when the call goes out. So there are some parallels to myocarditis, perhaps, in that respect. In some respects, you are probably walking a thin line between uh, when is the child sick enough and when is the child too sick. Uh, you noted earlier that the a higher lactate prior to going on ECMO was associated with non-survival. Do you use? Do you follow lactate? Do you use that as part of your decision-making process? Yeah, I think so. Uh, again, there's no one thing that helps you. It, it has to be input from multiple uh, sources. But yes, I think a rising lactate is one of the things we definitely do use. Other things are progressive um, falling of central venous oxygen saturation, or if we see uh, progressive, clearly demonstrable progressive ventricular dilatation on echo despite therapy, and particularly when those echo observations are matched 
by the initiation of arrhythmias, then we know that things are getting very serious and we need to just get on with it. But yeah, lactate is certainly one of them we use. So what do you think the implications of your study are for clinical practice um, and particularly for other institutions? Um, I guess on the one hand, what we're talking about here is quite a rare entity. If you walk up to most senior pediatric intensivists and say, how many children have you had die of just fulminant septic shock? The answer is probably not that many. And again, over this nine-year period, we didn't have that many children, maybe two or three a year. So it's rel- And this is an ECMO program that does about 40 to 50 cases a year. So it's, it's quite a rare entity. But it still happens. We know from uh, work done several years ago by Derek Angus and others that that uh, about 10% of children hospitalized with severe sepsis in the U.S. die. Um, Now, obviously, not all of those would be saved by ECMO, but some of them are presumably dying of refractory shock, and in which case ECMO would be be helpful for those children. Um, We would, uh, I think a study would support that central ECMO should be considered at the very least a valid cannulation strategy, Uh, but in fact, I think we would argue that it's the standard by which other strategies should be judged our historical survival before the year 2000 with peripheral ECMO was only 38%, and I think that's pretty much universal. If you talk to to uh, institutions that have been doing ECMO for septic shock, it's the majority of children do not survive. Um, and again, that's matched by the ACCM position on the subject. But uh, we followed up a lot of these children, and so far we haven't had any a child, to my knowledge, dying after discharge or surviving with severe disability, the majority make a complete recovery. So what we would really want is for other centres to try this and see is this something peculiar to southeastern Australia or what we're doing? Is the pathophysiology of septic shock different in different parts of the world? Or is this, in fact, something that can be applied elsewhere? Well, you certainly make a convincing case that it should at least be considered um, with an open mind if one is at an institution that has the resources to do it. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? I guess one of the big stumbling blocks to a lot of intensivists is persuading the cardiac surgeons to get involved. I know of at least uh, one institution in which this particular article, before it got published, it was uh, it was already e-published, though, that was the thing which took the cardiac surgeon over over the line, so to speak, and they agreed to, to do it. But I, I've spoken to many clinicians about this issue, including some of the, the biggest names in the ECMO community, and I know at least three centers in the U.S., all, all big ECMO centers, have used central cannulation for septic shock at least once. And all three program directors said, yes, I would, I would do this again. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Graham. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. We have been talking today with Dr. Graham McLaren from the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, Australia, about the article Central Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation for Refractory Pediatric Septic Shock, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in March 2011. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. For more information, visit www.sccm.org iCriticalCare. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. 
Registration is now open for SCCM's 41st Critical Care Congress, which will take place February 4th to 8th, 2012, in Houston, Texas, USA. Explore new frontiers in a city where great ideas take flight. Houston provides the perfect setting to forge new connections and fuel innovation in the critical care community. The 41st Congress will focus on new and innovative solutions that dramatically improve the outcomes and lives of critically ill and injured patients worldwide. For more information or to register, visit www.sccm.org congress. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, guest podcast editor for pediatrics. Dr. Parker is director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.